Hey, listener. Before we get into the good stuff, I just wanted to let you know, if you'd rather just get this entire audiobook at once and start listening to it immediately, just head over to my website at nickthacker.com audio. That's N-I-C-K-T-H-A-C-K-E-R.com slash audio. This is The Atlantis Stone by me, Nick Thacker, read by my friend with a much better voice, Mike Vendetti. Valdemar Becca watched the young man standing next to the wreckage, his back to the soldiers, and he could almost hear him assessing the situation. He was nothing special, average build, neither fat nor skinny. Valdemar wondered if he was scared, and he smiled inwardly at the thought. They'd caused the car wreck late last night. Becca himself had wired a simple explosive charge to the road, set to detonate on impact. The first vehicle that came down the winding road at the top of the cliff hit the strand of explosives and careened down here. The car was almost immediately engulfed in flames. The driver, a man of about 30 years, was able to crawl out before the sedan caused him too much harm. It was amazing he'd lived, actually, but it made it easier for the Vilocorp team to pluck him off the side of the road, wounded and in a daze, and bring him into the lab. There, Becca knew the man would die, not right away, but eventually. He would be subjected to many tests, painful tests. He would eventually succumb to his injuries. So far, none of their subjects had survived, and that man, and this kid in front of him now, would be no exception. Becca had been a part of Vilosec's guard unit for more than a year, and had mostly enjoyed the work. His commander, Agent Karn, something of a slave driver who expected more from his agents than most military combat units. But Karn did allow his men autonomy most of the time. Karn didn't care what the men did off-duty and on-duty, he certainly didn't care how the dirty work was done. As long as it was done quickly, completely. Recently, the team received orders from the head of Vilocorp, Tanning Vilosek to use immediate and lethal force to acquire particular assets for the company. Karn, Becca, and the other three agents were all too happy to comply. An entire African village was then thoroughly laid to waste. On another mission, they had smoked out the entire corporate headquarters of a small mining company in Peru to find a particular object for Vilosek. The employees were herded into a group outside while Agent Karn and the others went in to retrieve the package. Becca, tasked with keeping the people in line, tied the people together by the hands, and fired a few rounds into the edges of the group. 
In the ensuing chaos and stampede, many were trampled as others struggled to escape. Becca had watched with mild interest for a few moments until the hysteria began to annoy him. Then he calmly shot the survivors. Becca had no doubt that this type of dirty work was his personal talent. A sadistic calling that made him perfect for Karn's team and for Vilacorp. His childhood priest had often talked about the importance of calling, and Valdemar now understood that the priest had been right all along. Becca was a killer, and he was brutally good at it. He heard the whoomp of Karn's rifle, but as it struck the young man's face, and Becca came back to the present. He licked his lips in anticipation of a fight though he knew it would take very little to beat the American into submission. He stepped up to receive his orders. Cough him. Bring him back to the facility. Dr. Vilasek wants to run initial tests within the hour. Yes, sir, Becca responded without emotion. He reached for the shackles at the young man's feet. As Becca squatted down, Cole suddenly lashed out and kicked some gravel into Becca's face. Then he bolted, leaving Beck and the others momentarily frozen in place. The soldiers behind Agent Karn lifted his rifles in turn, preparing to fire at the fleeing man. Stand down, Agent Karn rasped. He swung his assault rifle up and aimed steadily down the sight. Becca stood obediently by, watching as Karn tensed his upper body and relaxed his core, preparing for the recoil. Rifle at a thump, not unlike the sound of a cork popping from a wine bottle. Instead of the quick and deafening bang of a normal assault rifle, the thump hung in the air, a pulsating, rhythmic zzz. The sound resembled an electric discharge, but deeper. Chapter 5 Cole couldn't hear any footsteps, and he was just beginning to wonder what was going on behind him. Then the shockwave hit him. His body convulsed with tremors for a split second. He felt everything go weak. Tried to force his legs to keep moving, but a loud, pulsating hum overtook his thoughts and filled his brain. His entire body felt tingly, like a limb falling asleep. He was completely paralyzed. Still conscious, yet unable to look around or even blink, Cole had a sudden sense of vertigo. It seemed the road beneath his feet was slowly receding. Chapter 6 
Forcing his eyes open, he tried to blink back the fuzziness in his vision and look around. Bryce couldn't believe he was alive. He also couldn't believe how much pain he was in. The bullet wounds, two of them, felt tight, like someone was pushing down on them. A quick glance down revealed that they had been clean, wrapped, and bandaged. But he felt like other areas of his body had been under attack as well. His head felt swollen under pressure, his legs were weak. It was almost impossible to shift his body to the side to see his visitor. His visitor? Who was that? The fogginess in his eyes cleared, but his mind seemed reluctant to operate fully. He squinted, trying to see who was sitting next to his bed. A man he could tell from the wide shoulders and lanky frame. He was older, maybe mid-fifties, and his thinning salt and pepper hair sat in a small swirly wisp by his head. Ah, Captain, it's good to see you awake, the man said. Who, who are you? Bryce asked, still groggy. My name is James Whittenfield, Jr. My company, Whittenfield Research, is one of the leading philanthropic environmental organizations in the world. I'd offer to shake your hand, but considering... It's okay. What exactly can I do for you, Mr. Whittenfield? As he let the man continue his introduction, Bryce got a look around. He was in a hospital, and from its dingy appearance, it seemed it was a small and all but forgotten one at that. Call me James. Well, Bryce, I'm interested in you. Your performance last week in Samara was quite impressive. I heard about it from Major Dwight Maines. Maines? He wasn't there, Bryce said, confused. Actually, he was there just in time to snatch you right out from under the grasp of the Iraqi Republican Guard. He flew in. His chopper team gunned down five or six Iraqis just outside their camp. I saw you on the ground. Good thing, too. You weren't in such great shape. A few more minutes down there, you'd have bled to death. Yeah, well, I'm starting to think maybe that would have been better. Bryce said, trying to stretch out his tight muscles. I'm not sure about that, Winfield said, reaching for something in his coat pocket. As he did, Bryce noticed the man's attire for the first time. A pressed suit, Brooks Brothers, or another high-end tailored variety, with a fitted white Oxford shirt, conservative yet contemporary. His left hand was inside the coat, and the man's wrist and watch was exposed. Cartier Chronograph, 1953 edition. Bryce knew it was worth upwards of $20,000. So this guy really does have some money. He also didn't fit in with the hospital either. The walls behind the man were dusty and Bryce could smell the faint hint of the dry sandiness of the desert. They were still in Iraq, or at least somewhere in the Middle East. Maybe in a civilian hospital, though it was hard to tell. He looked back to the man at the side of the bed. This guy, James Woodenfield, was American, judging by his accent possibly from the Northeast, Philadelphia, or Boston. Wittenfield retracted his hand from his coat pocket, holding the notebook. Rice's eyes narrowed. The events that day on the battlefield coming rushing back. If you weren't rescued, we might never have found this little gem. So what, there's nothing in it, it's blank, 
Bryce responded. I noticed. Lucky thing, too. The others aren't. The others? Right, I've got plenty more of these little notebooks, Woodenfield said, flipping through the blank pages. They were my father's. James Woodenfield Sr., that is. He started Woodenfield Research, and these books, about 30 of them altogether, were his personal journals, research hypotheses, experimental results. It's all in there. This one, the one that was stolen from my lab a few months ago, is the last notebook. One he hadn't started writing in yet, Woodenfield explained. What kind of research? What does the company do? Captain Bryce, using his first name as he continued, My work has always been a roller coaster ride. There's always someone you're pissing off one day, and this entire scientific community's in an uproar because of you the next. We are an environmental research firm, and most of our clients are multinational corporations. Pharmaceuticals, defense systems, engineers, even oil conglomerates. They're all waiting in line to talk to us. We provide a unique form of insurance to our customers. Future-proofing. You see, Captain Reynolds, most companies are more afraid of the future than anything else. Are they going to remain profitable? Are they going to consistently deliver on their numbers and keep their shareholders happy? Are they even going to remain solvent in this economy? These are things they're worrying about every day, and companies like mine offer an insurance policy against these fears. We can research and deliver the next line of products that will redefine their industries before their competitors even know they're working on it. Bryce interrupted, frowning. You're a gigantic research firm working with the world's largest companies. Why haven't I ever heard of you, he asked. Well, first, we're not exactly a large research firm. We only work with a few clients at a time, though conveniently they usually want the same thing. Immunity from their competitors' attacks. Immortality, if you will. They all want to maintain their position at the forefront of the respective marketplaces. And it turns out we can usually deliver on that wish. Due to this extremely proprietary nature of our work, we aren't well known outside the small circle of businesses we've worked with. And we intend to keep it that way. Okay, great. Makes sense, Bryce said. Finally sitting up fully on the hospital bed. But what does all this have to do with me? I know about your mother, Bryce, Woodenfield said, almost cutting Bryce off. I know she's suffering from a rare viral infection, a strain that's rendered her mostly paralyzed. Bryce's eyes flashed in anger, then to a steely burn. She's not going to be able to heal. They have no idea what it is or how to fix it. He pictured his mother, Diana Reynolds, in bed in her Utah home. A nurse, basically a hospice worker from a local retirement community in nearby Salt Lake City, stayed with her most of the morning and evenings to provide basic care, cleaning, feeding, and the occasional one-way conversation. The memory pained him, but he knew there was nothing he could do for her. He'd already spent both of their life's savings on treatment, 
supplying doctors to and from a small cottage, only to be told the viral infection wasn't contagious. He'd run out of money and the military's insurance plan forced him to continue serving on active duty to continue paying for her care. What do you know about that? Price asked. There was a small article about it in a medical publication not too long ago. Whittenfield replied. One of my doctors found it. What I found most intriguing about your mother's case is that we had two similar incidences like it, not six months before the article was published. To others, I thought it was an isolated incident, Bryce said. As did we, but it's not. While we haven't been able to understand the source of the infection, I do believe we've found a treatment. Bryce's hair on the back of his neck stood up. Could he be telling the truth? After so long, so much time spent chasing a dead end? A treatment? Like an antidote? Yes. Well, we're not finished yet. The first two subjects didn't survive, but I think we've isolated the culprit in the viral cell's makeup. And I think we can figure out how to heal your mother. But Bryce, I need something from you in return. Your performance in the Rangers hasn't gone unnoticed. I know about your accomplishments so far. Your quick mind. Dwight Means is a close friend of mine from Cambridge. We studied together in our introductory courses, and I've been picking his brain lately about his men here in the Special Forces. You see, we need someone like you out at the research lab, Whittenfield said. Someone like me, Price asked. A soldier? No, not just a soldier. I saw your test results. The comprehension, deductive reasoning skills, off the charts, Bryce. I don't want someone who can wield a gun. Any grunt with two eyes and arms can do that. I need someone who can protect our interests. Interests that I'm afraid will be under scrutiny very soon. This notebook was just the first incident. Whoever's after my father's research, my research, is going to continue snooping around until they find what they're looking for. If you agree to leave with me now, I can fill you in with the specifics of the job on the way. I am prepared to make you an offer up front, take it or leave it, of one million dollars. If you stay with me for all six months, I'll pay you another million. I know you'd like to get back to your mother, but give me the next six months of your life, and you'll be set for the rest of it. Oh, and suffice it to say, Anything we can do for your mother's health will be done. If we find a treatment, and I believe we will, for your mother's paralysis, you can consider her healed, all expenses paid. Bryce was stunned. Two million dollars in six months? He couldn't imagine what this guy would want him to do. It seemed too good to be true. Well, it sounds like a pretty fantastic offer. But I don't know anything about your company. What's the catch? Why are you so interested in protection? Woodenfield sighed, but didn't hesitate in his response. He stood and walked to the foot of Bryce's bed. The reason you have never heard of us is that we have been continuing along the same line of research since the mid-1930s that has paralleled a similar yet 
much more popularized topic in American culture. My father's initial experimentation in the field of crystal uranium synthesis led to a small team of researchers, my father included, discovering the unique characteristics of the uranium element's isotopes. The work was highly classified, but of extreme importance to the U.S. government, and in 1939, an official project was initiated called the Development of Substitute Materials. Bryce glanced up sharply at the man standing before him. His mind raced as he tried to place what this man, James Whittenfield Jr., had just said. Where had he heard of that before? My father's research was paramount to modern American history. What my father's discoveries led to, what that team ended up becoming, was the foundation for the atomic bomb. Their project was called the Development of Substitute Materials. But the American population now knows it by its code name, the Manhattan Project. Hey, listener, this podcast is a year-long journey, but I get it. Sometimes we're in it for the destination, not the journey. If you want it all at once, right now, without having to wait a year, grab it here, nickthacker.com slash audio. That's N-I-C-K-T-H-A-C-K-E-R dot com slash audio. Oh, and if you use the code PODCAST2021 at checkout, I'll give you another 20% off.